We come this morning in First Peter 3 to what is universally recognized as one of the most, if not the most difficult text in the New Testament. It's a passage which has generated numerous different interpretations. The idea of Christ descending into hell, for example, after his death, comes from, or at least has been supported mainly from this text. The idea that maybe the dead, maybe the dead get a second chance to hear the gospel, that has been seen from this text. The idea that Christ himself somehow, mysteriously, preached during the days of Noah is another interpretation. And there is also in the text an obviously important, yet quite difficult reference to Christian baptism, which you might have heard as the text was read. One commentator says that given the various challenges of the text, given its complexity, given the options that an interpreter might face here, he says there are about 180 possible combinations or choices that the interpreter has to make. About 180. That being said, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We're not here to solve all these issues or even many or any of them. We are here to listen to the word of God and the main point of the passage is clear enough. Not only is it clear enough, it's very important to Peter's audience, to the scattered exiles, right, to the sojourners, then and now. So with that, we'll make three points. They're there on the outline in the bulletin. The victory, the proclamation, and baptism. So first, the victory. Now, remember where we are in the book. In the previous passage, Peter had concluded that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And here, he intends to expand that argument. He intends to show us why is that the case. Right? He's already spoken of Christ's unjust suffering on the cross. And indeed, he's spoken of our blessing, our glory being rooted in the imitation of Christ, in a kind of participation in his sufferings. Right? That's what he said over and over and over. So this is the center for Peter, for the New Testament, of a Christian's public and political witness. Namely, following Jesus in the way of the cross. Through the ethic, if you will, of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Peter begins this text by returning to the center. Right, to the fulcrum, namely, that is, to the cross. So that brings us to verse 18, the opening of the text. For Christ also suffered for us. Jesus' suffering, about which Peter has had a lot to say, is not merely, not merely the suffering of an innocent victim. Though it is that. It is that. 
Nor is it merely suffering as a pattern, a set of footsteps for us to follow, though Peter is very insistent that it is that. Right? He suffered here, the text says, once, meaning once and for all time, he suffered for sins. His death alone is vicarious, meaning he takes our place. He is our substitute. All of this is packed into that little word, for. Christ suffered for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, the text says. The righteous for the unrighteous. The human race is here viewed quite starkly. It has two categories. The righteous people and the unrighteous people. And in the category of righteous people, there is one. Jesus Christ. Everybody else is in the category of the unrighteous. And yet it's tricky, isn't it? Once we are made righteous in Christ, we sort of forget this and then divide the world up into the righteous and the unrighteous with us on the righteous side. The substitution here is total, right? We are unclean. We are guilty. We are accursed. We are unrighteous. And Christ, Christ is holy and innocent and righteous, and he bears the curse for us. This is the heart of the Christian faith, right? This is what we call atonement. And if you reject this atonement, you will have other scapegoats and other victims, right? You will be involved in some endless attempt to wipe away guilt, Without this cross, that guilt will always remain, and it will always resurface somewhere else. There's a great deal of scapegoating going on, because we won't accept Christ as the scapegoat who bore our sins. You want to be truly righteous, just. Not the faux righteousness that is so much the rage in our culture. True justice. Right? Peter said already earlier in this chapter that Christ suffered for our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, live unto justice. There is no justice without Christ's atonement. There are only pale imitations. So, here, Peter says this, Christ died for us, notice, to bring us to God. It doesn't get any simpler than that, does it? Christ died for us, why? What's the purpose of the atonement? What is, what is the purpose of the triune God and Jesus Christ? Is it this purpose or that purpose or all of these purposes? It's to bring us to God. Why did Christ die? To bring us who were alienated, 
who were without God in the world to God. And so communion then with the triune God is the reason, not one reason among other reasons, not a means to an end. God is never a means to an end. Right? Often we think this way. Christ brought us to God so we can go out and do this and this and this and this. You know, that subtly becomes a form of idolatry. Because God himself now becomes not the end, but the means to a bunch of social and cultural and political ends. He died to bring us into the life and light and love of the triune God. The triune God is never a means to an end. He is the end the goal of the atoning work of Christ. So this is atonement to create a God-centered, God-saturated people. Many of us first learned to think this way years ago in J.I. Packer's little book, Knowing God, which if you haven't read it, you should read it. You may or may not know, but J.I. Packer passed away, went home to be with the Lord in glory this week. He was in his 90s. He said this in Knowing God in 1973. He said, we have been brought, now this is 1973. We have been brought to the point where we both can and must get our life's priorities straight. From current Christian publications you might think that the most vital issue for any real or would-be Christian in the world today is church union or social witness or dialogue with other Christians or refuting this or that ism or developing a Christian philosophy and culture or what have you. But our line of study, meaning this book which you are reading, which is about knowing the triune God himself, Our line of study, he says, makes the present day concentration on these things look like a gigantic conspiracy of misdirection. Right? There are two kinds of Christians in the world. Those for whom the life of the triune God in glory is the center. The pulsating reality around which everything else turns. And then those who are involved in what Packer calls a gigantic conspiracy of misdirection. Of course, he says, it is not that. The issues themselves are real and they must be dealt with in their place. All right, so it's not really a gigantic conspiracy of misdirection, he says. It's a gigantic conspiracy of misproportion. These other isms, right, Christian philosophy, culture, social witness, he says, these are real issues. They have to be dealt with in their place. But it is tragic, this is him again, it is tragic that in paying attention to them, so many in our day seem to have been distracted from what was and what is and what will always be the true priority for every human being. That is learning to know God in Jesus Christ. He died to bring us to God. I've had the experience in the last week or so of using an app on my phone, the ESV app, to just read me the book of Hebrews. 
Just listen to the whole book of Hebrews. It's 13 chapters. It takes 30 or 40 minutes. It reads the whole book to you. So I had, I've done it a few times. And one time this week, I took a piece of paper. I said, I'm going to take a pencil. And I, I recorded, I just marked, every time the text referred either to, to God's glory, to heaven itself, to the eschaton, or to the final judgment. 151, that's the answer. 151 times in the book of Hebrews, the text directs you to heaven itself. How many references to developing a Christian social witness and and, and politics? Zero. 151, zero. Christ died to bring us to God. I did the same thing with 1 Peter, by the way, right after that. It's 51 to 0 in 1 Peter. I said to my wife, I would like to institute a policy where we can talk about politics only after we've had 151 conversations about God himself. 151, then we'll admit some discussion of the current social situation. Boy, that would create a lot of silence in the Christian world. (laughs) This is why Christ died. To take you and bring you up to God. That's it. Yes, other things flow from that. This work of Christ is further described. Right, It's an eschatological work. He was put to death in the body and raised, made alive in the spirit, Peter says. And this does not refer to two parts of Christ, like his body and his spirit. This refers to two orders of existence. Christ dies in this age, in the flesh, the realm of the flesh. He is raised in the power of the age to come into the realm of the spirit where you now live. Christians don't even have their life centered in this fundamental order of existence. It is centered in the spirit with the risen Christ. Christ has died. Christ has been raised in the power of the spirit. And that is what God has done to bring us into communion with the triune God. Communion with the triune God requires resurrection. It is an eschatological, eternal, heavenly mode of existence. Now, I want to jump ahead here just to point out the overall flow of this text. I want to get stuck on the complicated baptism stuff in the middle. So let's note this. Peter has set forth the cross of Jesus vividly. Now he stresses that that Christ is raised. Right? He was made alive in the spirit. And then, after mentioning the resurrection again in verse 21... In verse 22, he says this, he has gone into heaven and he's at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. A clear reference to Christ's ascension and to his enthronement above all the powers. So the text is then about what? It's about Christ's death and his resurrection and his ascension. This is the heart of the Apostles' Creed in this text. Thus, it is about Christ triumphing in order to bring us to God. Right? What does Jesus tell his disciples on the night he was betrayed, on the night that his passion was about to commence? Right? I am going away. 
and I'm preparing a place. I will come back. I will bring you with me. So, why is this important, right? He's writing this to a church which is suffering, which is afflicted, which is harassed and beleaguered. A community or a series of communities of Christian exiles. So, remember, Peter is encouraging Christians oppressed by the powers. And Christ, who, when reviled, refused to revile in return. Christ, who refused to retaliate in kind. Christ, who refused threatening. Christ, who submitted to the corrupt powers that be, is now, Peter says, exalted with all the powers in submission to him. It's important that he add this, right? Jesus didn't just end at, at, at the death. His story doesn't end there. And thus he's saying to the community, Christians, in your suffering, you are being drawn into the mystery of the cross, right? Even in their martyrdom, they are already participating in and by your suffering in Christ's victory and his resurrection. Notice, Peter is saying, thus you are already joined, even in the midst of participating in the sufferings and the afflictions of this age, the sufferings and afflictions of Christ, you are already joined to the victorious, risen, and ascended one. The Christ you are united to is exalted. We are united to him in our weakness in this age, to be sure, but he is exalted. And that's the dominant message of this passage. He died to bring us to God. And thus we are to follow. And we shall follow in his footsteps. Right? Peter's already told us. He's a pattern. You're going to follow in his footsteps. And for us in this age, that means the way of the cross. But ultimately it means the crown. From the cross to the crown. From weakness to glory. From humiliation to exaltation. So look at what Peter has now said to the church, the sojourning church. His humiliation teaches us the way of non-retaliation, the way of meekness. His exaltation gives us courage in that way of meekness. But his exaltation does not change our mode. He doesn't say, look, it, don't worry about this turning the other cheek now, now that Christ exalted. Christ is victorious. He says, no, in your weakness and in your meekness, now you have courage to know that you are joined to this one in heaven. And you have the secure hope of heavenly glory. Christ is triumphant and Peter's flock and all the suffering saints, all the socially marginalized saints do already share in his victory. Yes, the Christian life for us is cruciform, shaped by the cross, shaped by the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching of Jesus. But that cruciform weakness is joined to this one, this ascended one, this triumphant one, and thus it is already a form of sharing in his triumph and victory. So that's the victory. The second point is the proclamation. Now comes the fun part. 
uh, verse 19. He's, Christ was made alive and he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Spirits who seem to date back to the time of Noah. Now, the fact that some sort of proclamation is being made by Christ here, that's beyond dispute. But here are all the big questions. Here are all the big questions. When did this happen? Where did it happen? To whom did Jesus make this proclamation? And what did he proclaim? Right? When did it happen? Where did it happen? To whom did it happen? And what was said? So let's take them one at a time, and and I'm going to go quickly here. When? After his resurrection, at the time of his ascension, the text demands that this is the time that Christ made this proclamation. Where was the proclamation made? In the realm of the Spirit. Christ is addressing imprisoned spirits. The place of principalities and powers, that's where the proclamation is made. To whom does Jesus make this proclamation? The text says to spirits who were disobedient during the days of Noah long ago, when God waited patiently and an ark was being built. You might ask, what? Why these beings? We will get to that. But it's pretty clear that that's who's being addressed. That's who. And what does Christ proclaim to them? Well, he proclaims his victory. The text is about his victory. Verse 22 makes it clear. His victory is an announcement of their doom. Not only their doom, but the final doom of all angels and authorities and powers which are already subjected to the ascended Christ. So one might ask here, okay, I get all that, but what's with the spirits in Noah's day? I mean, why is he jumping back to them? And the reason appears to be that Peter thinks that Christians live in a time similar to Noah. A time when Noah was building the ark and waiting for this cataclysmic judgment to fall. We heard Jesus in the gospel lesson speak of the coming spiritual, right, invisible kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, he says. It's within you. What did Jesus say in that gospel lesson? He said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. Right? And one thing is clear in this letter, this whole letter of 1 Peter. Peter thinks the end of all things is at hand. He thinks that the judgment is about to begin. We'll see that over the next couple weeks. And in his second letter, 2 Peter 3, he makes it clear that the world of Noah being destroyed by water means that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. So Noah is a picture of the church at the end of time. In the ark Noah built, Peter says, only a few people Only a few people, eight in all, the text says, were saved through water. Right? The water is a sifting judgment ordeal, a picture of the final fire, where one is either drowned by the water or saved through the water. 
Peter's flock, few in number as well. They will certainly be saved through the coming fiery judgment ordeal. That's why the reference is back to Noah. Noah and his family. And Peter's readers are both beleaguered minorities. They are both called to witness to the patience and the coming judgment of God, which was and which is soon to fall because it is at hand. Listen to Peter. Listen to Peter pull a bunch of these themes together. This is in 2 Peter 2. He says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but put them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. And here's the lesson for Peter's readers. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is why the victory proclamation is to the spirits from the day of Noah, now imprisoned, now restrained by God for the day of judgment. That judgment day has arrived in the ascension, in the victory procession of Christ over all the powers. And the doom of these spirits means the doom of all evil powers. And that means the final vindication of the suffering church. Now, that's the quickest, dirtiest tour of 1 Peter 3 that you can get, I think. Um, And there's a lot of stuff left on the side here. But let's just be clear about a couple of things. One, there is no descent into the underworld in the text. There is no second chance for the dead to hear the gospel in the text, though these things have had their advocates. This is the preaching the victory proclamation of the risen and ascended Christ to the defeated powers. That's the proclamation. And that brings us to the third point then, which is baptism. Noah's household was saved through the water. And the text tells us this water symbolizes baptism. So that the flood, the Noahic flood, is a type, it's a picture, it's a foreshadowing of Christian baptism. Now, I'd like to suggest we don't often make this connection because it makes baptism a cataclysmic, eschatological event. The waters of Christian baptism are like the waters of the flood. When they're received, by faith they are healing waters. When one rejects the preaching, first of Noah, then of Christ, these waters become a deluge of judgment. Right? What the flood pictured or what the flood Uh, prefigured what it was a type of, baptism is. Namely, a coming eternal judgment ordeal. It's the future day of judgment brought to bear on the person baptized. The water says, you are being flooded with the waters of Noah. They will either drown you or purify you. This is why baptism saves, Peter says. Notice he says that here. Baptism now saves you. And salvation here is future. Almost always for Peter, when he talks about salvation, he means salvation in the final last day. Eternal vindication. Baptism now saves, he says, not through a removal of dirt from the body, but by an oath or a pledge of a clear conscience toward God. 
So it's not the ritual per se, he says. It's not just that you're washed with water. Baptism, he says, places you, and if you were baptized, you should heed these words. Right? It places you under an oath. Baptism is a pledge. An oath-bound promise to live with a clear, sprinkled conscience before God. Right? That's why baptism is completed in the supper. Baptism is a pledge, and that pledge must be owned and fulfilled. And thus people come to the supper to fulfill their baptismal pledge, to have their conscience toward God sprinkled with the blood of Christ visibly on display at the table. People come to the supper to manifest what they have pledged, namely, a clear conscience before God. So, the waters of baptism, then, are designed. They're designed by God to drown, to destroy, to judge, and to conquer our enemies. Sin and death and the powers that are arrayed against us. Baptism is a cataclysmic, cosmic action, Peter says. Now, when he says, baptism now saves you, striking language to many of our ears, right? He does not mean it saves you apart from or in abstraction from Jesus Christ, right? The whole passage is about our union with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. So Peter concludes here by saying, baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's already said in chapter 1 that we are born again. By the way, that's baptismal language, right? We are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here he reiterates that point. Baptism joins you to the crucified and risen Christ. That's why it saves you. What does this mean? Well, it means when we look at Jesus Christ and his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, which is the centerpiece of this text. It means we look at one who has already undergone the great coming judgment ordeal on the cross. All hell, all the fire of the coming wrath, of the coming judgment, all the forces of spiritual darkness are loosed on him, a flood of evil, a deluge of judgment, and he has prevailed. He has been raised in triumph. He has proclaimed that triumph to the powers. He has ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, at the right hand of glory, with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. And baptism joins you to that triumph, to that victory, no matter how much weakness and despair and suffering there is in your life. That baptism joins you to that victory. And it binds you by an oath to live out that union with Christ with a clear conscience toward God. After all, the purpose of baptism is the purpose of Christ, is the purpose of God, namely what? To bring us to God. So let's, in closing, I want to very briefly look at how this advances Peter's argument in the letter so far. Christians, he says, are aliens. They are sojourners. They are exiles. They have a heavenly inheritance. And Peter expects the church to suffer. 
Right? He repeatedly fixes the church's hope on the future coming of Christ. He exhorts the church to patient submission in imitation of the master's cross. He exhorts to nonviolent suffering and waiting. But here he reminds them and he reminds us that Christ is risen and victorious over the powers and ascended into heaven. And so he reminds them, calls them to remember their baptism. This is what we mean in the Reformed tradition when we say to the flock, remember your baptism. Right? Your baptism, like the waters of Noah, pledges the final vindication of God's little scattered flock. And so we, who lack any earthly power, and who in any event, even if we didn't lack earthly power, we do not use earthly weapons. We do not use carnal weapons. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We bear witness. We live out our baptismal oath. We confess the faith. Knowing, knowing, like the preaching of Noah, right, that our baptism is a sign of the coming doom of the already defeated hosts. For Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ has proclaimed his triumph, and he is seated at the right hand of God with all the powers subjected to him. So let me just say it in closing. This is what this means for you. It means you, like these believers, are joined to in all of your distress, in all of your suffering, in all of your weakness, in all of your darkness, and in all of your doubt, and in all of your, also like them, in all of your social and political impotence, you are joined to the Lord of glory and to his cosmic victory. That is what Peter is saying to these scattered exiles in this text. Praise be to God. Amen.